comes from Malachi, the third chapter, verses 12, 7 through 12. That's Malachi, the third chapter, verses 7 through 12. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I'm sorry, that was all my fault. <laughs> this is new technology to me, and I screwed it up completely. I apologize. <laughs> Mary Beth, is between the two of them, they'll work it out. Let me introduce this text and, and tell you why we're here. Um, there are no technology classes at seminary. Um, today, as you heard, there is, uh, we're having a congregational meeting. And as part of the meeting, we're going to talk about our budget, that is, the money that we have to spend. And all of that money comes from you, uh, your tithe to this church. We have no secret funds. We have no secret sources of money. We don't get anything from our denomination or anybody else. And so I'm going to talk to you about tithing, um, why it exists and why it's important uh, as a preparation for you to hear from us about the tithing of the budget of this church. So you see this passage from Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And there's a gap about 400 years between Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a gap between the end of God's words to Israel and his new word, Jesus, to Israel as the Son of God comes as the Messiah. And so this is God's last word. And you can see that God is upset. Why is he upset? Well, if you read the Bible, and hopefully many of you do, the Old Testament tells a grand story. There's a lot of individual little stories and anecdotes and history. There's all kinds of stuff in there. But there is a grand story, a story that links everything together. Uh, technically, it's called redemptive history. It begins at the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, with Adam and Eve, and they are created perfect. There's no sin, there's no pain, there's no suffering, everything is wonderful. But by the third chapter of Genesis, they have fallen, fallen out of relationship with God, they've rebelled, fallen out of relationship with nature, the world is broken, 
fallen out of relationship with each other. And so there's darkness. There's a lot of bloodshed, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of ugliness at the beginning of Genesis. Until God begins, as he promises, to redeem the world. And he starts with Abraham, the man of faith. This is about 2,000 years before Christ. Abraham is called by God to go to a, a new land and to begin a new people. That land is Israel. Now, they fall into a piece of, they fall into bondage under the Egyptians, but God redeems them once again through Moses, leads them out into the desert, leads them back to the land that he gave to Abraham. That's about 1,500 years before Christ. Then you get Israel flourishing under the king, David. He's the one that makes uh, Jerusalem the capital. He's the one that brings the ark there. That's about a thousand years before Christ. And then you have the history of Israel, which is what most of the Old Testament is about, the history of God's relationship. And the whole point of Israel is that Israel is designed to be a holy people, that is, God's people, to witness God to the whole world. But they constantly fall away from that purpose. They constantly chase after other gods. They squabble with each other. They fight. They get corrupt. And so God sends prophets to challenge them, to correct them, to remind them of who they are. And there's a constant process of rebellion Restoration, rebellion, and restoration. And that's the Old Testament. In fact, it's really a metaphor for every Christian's life. A process of rebellion and restoration, rebellion and restoration, as we learn to be God's people. Eventually, God gets fed up. And that's where we get to Malachi. Ever since the time of your ancestors... You have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Who are the ancestors? They are the patriarchs that we see in the Old Testament. Abraham, his sons Isaac, his son Jacob, Moses, David, all the way through the history of Israel. These are the ancestors through whom God's promise to redeem is fulfilled. Of course, that lineage ends in Jesus. And what are the decrees? Another word for this is covenant or promises. What are God's promises to his people, to Israel? Well, he starts with Abraham, the man of faith, and God says this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So God promises, beginning with Abraham, remember this is redemptive history, this is God's purpose of redeeming in history. The way he chooses to do that is through the lineage that starts with Abraham and through his descendants all the way down to Jesus. The result 
is a holy nation, Israel, that is able to witness God's promises, God's goodness, and God's purposes to the world, and actually to become the, um, the place where the Messiah will be understood. When Jesus comes, we can understand him because we are prepared by the history of the Old Testament, because it interprets what's going to happen. But of course, Israel repeatedly fails about this purpose. They become self-absolved, self-focused. They tend to dismiss people outside of Israel, um, considering them uh, unworthy of being spoken to or touched or interacted with. They become insular. And rather than being a witness to the world, they become all about themselves. And then God says this. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal God rob God? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. This word tithe is a Hebrew word originally that means a tenth. So a tenth of the yearly harvest was to be brought by each person as a gift to God's house. What was God's house? That was the temple. And the temple's job was to take care of the people. The priests there were responsible to distribute the money that was received to the poor, to the destitute, to the sick, to the widows. It was God's way of taking care of his people, God's way of building his house. And God says, when you don't give the tithe, you are robbing me. Well, how can that be right? From God's perspective, everything that we have is originally from him. Our lives, our wealth, our house, our health, everything that we are, is a gift from God. And all he asks in return is a tenth of that as a way of advancing his kingdom on earth. 90% goes to us. 10%, God asks, goes towards advancing his kingdom, his agenda, his house in the world. And notice what he says, verse 9. You are under a curse your whole nation, because you are robbing me. To be blessed by God means to be made holy, to receive the Holy Spirit, to literally be set apart for God's purposes. To be holy, to be blessed, means to be doing what God wants, to be pushing his agenda, building his kingdom, doing his will. It's why we pray, thy will, not my will be done. That is, to align ourselves with God's purpose in the world. So what is it to be cursed? To be cursed is to be outside God's favor and will. It means to be building our own kingdom, not his. It means to be following our own agenda, our own business, rather than giving ourselves to God's purposes. To be cursed doesn't mean 
being struck dead, it means ultimately to live a life that is irrelevant to God. To live a life that is outside what he is doing in the world. And so you can see why this was a problem for Israel. Israel was created by God as a holy nation. That is, a people set apart from other people in the world to reveal God to the world. But if you read the history of Israel, it's a history of repeated rebellion, repeated forgetting of what God had done to them, uh, repeatedly pursuing their own agenda, their own purposes, ignoring God's presence. And that means not to be holy anymore. That is why God had stopped speaking to them. That's why there were no more prophets. That's why God was not answering prayers. Because they had ceased to be about God's business. Ceased to be part of his purpose in the world. So by the way, that asks the question of each of us. Is God answering your prayers? Do you feel God's presence active in your life? If you are not about advancing his kingdom, then why should he answer your prayers? He's not Father Christmas. He doesn't just give you gifts and baubles. God answers prayers to release his power into the world so that the kingdom is advanced. And if you're not part of that purpose, if you're not part of advancing the kingdom, then you're not holy. And your prayers will not be answered. Not because God is punishing you, but because you have chosen to be irrelevant. You have chosen not to be part of what God is active, actively doing. And I think everybody who goes to church has to ask themselves this. Are you just going through the motions of faith? Are you just showing up out of inertia or habit? Or are you in this living relationship with God where you are seeking his will and purpose for your life and your prayers are not about goodies for yourself but are about how can you serve the kingdom? Another question. Is there anything in your life that actually requires God, that requires faith? Are you living safely within the little bubble that you can create for yourself? When was the last time you tried to do anything that would require God's help, that would require him to answer prayers for you, that would do something that you couldn't do by yourself? That's what faith is all about, stepping out of the bubble and needing God to be there for you. And when you do that, and when God shows up, personally, I think that is the gift of faith, is the gift of Christianity. When you see God active in your life, when you see him doing things that couldn't be done by anybody else, that's what living in the light means, to live in the light of God's presence his power, his glory. Just several years ago, our church went on a missions trip down to Honduras, uh, San Pedro Sula, one of uh, the more dangerous towns in Honduras. Every grocery store, it seemed, had some guy with a shotgun standing in front of it. 
and we were there to help a church. Um, they had a, a school for um, deaf kids, and uh, the only school in Honduras at that time, and they had a church associated with it. And the neighborhood was so violent that they wouldn't let us go outside the compound of the church. Fourteen people were killed the week before we arrived. And you could just feel the whole place was dark. The kids couldn't play in the parks or the school grounds because they were claimed by different gangs. The poorest houses had bars on their windows. Uh, and at night, it was almost completely dark because there were so few uh, electric streetlights. And you're right in the middle of this dreadful place, and it felt oppressive. There was the church. Now, it wasn't a particularly pretty church. It had been built out of concrete. The, the walls and the roof and the floor were just gray concrete. It looked like a bunker when you first moved in. But we went to a prayer meeting, and they had a worship service in there. They were celebrating our presence, but it was also their regular service. And they filled that space with worship and light and singing and dancing. The women of the church, there was a group of about 20 of them, came to the front of the church and wearing these wonderfully colored dresses, danced for us with, with streamers and banners. And all the little girls came up to dance with their moms to try to copy them. And I thought as I watched them, we are in one of the most dangerous places in South America. We are surrounded by darkness and violence and threat. And yet here, God has created this beautiful space filled with light and color, filled with dance, where little girls can copy their moms and learn to dance. What an amazing gift. What a space God had carved out purely through the faith of the people. They were poor. They had almost nothing. And yet they built this church and they worshiped there virtually every night. When the Bible says that God shines in the darkness, that is not just a metaphor. God and God's house is filled with the light of his presence. And when Christians in faith respond to God, that's what will create light in the darkness. Every place that God has worshipped, every place that his agenda is followed, the darkness is driven out. And that's what God's house is all about. You know, it's easy to forget we're in a safe, easy place like Hoboken. It's easy to think that we're just a social gathering, a bunch of people getting together on Sunday. But if you were here last week, we talked about the idea that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that's what Christians are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set apart for God's purposes, defined by God and his word, not by the word outside, defined by God's agenda, God's purpose, not by all the agendas that the world calls out to us. Building and advancing God's kingdom, not our own. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, 
that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that, will, that there will not be room enough to store it. This is the only place in the entire Bible where God says, test me. Where God says, if you doubt, if you're not sure, this is how you test me. You test my reality, you test my presence, you test my faithfulness. That's really what we're doing when we, when we tithe, when we give to the church. It's an, a test of ourselves. What do we really believe? You know, money itself is just paper. It has no intrinsic value, but it's how we keep track of things. It's how we keep track of what's important, what's valuable, what is worth our time and work and attention. And therefore, it's a really potent probe of the human heart. <coughs> if you're in a relationship, you know that money is a source of a lot of grief. Because it reveals what you really care about in your relationship with God, in your marriage, in your partnerships. What do you really value? Where is your heart? What is the focus of your life? And therefore, where you spend your money is a sign of your values, your commitments, your loves. And that's why tithing is such a test. <coughs> C.S. Lewis said this, we are eternal beings preparing for a relationship with God forever. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all the innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is at a state of war with and hatred with God, its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. <coughs> Some years ago, um, in my early 20s, I came back after a long trip, a number of years, and I came back home. It was great to be back and feel loved, to feel restored to the family. But after I'd been back a while, my mother asked me if I would give her 50 pounds a month to help with food and you know running the household. And she just mentioned it. It was not a big deal to her. And I was absolutely gutted. It was horrible. I sulked and moaned. 
I felt like I had become uh, an orphan, really. I was no longer a part of the family. I was uh, an outcast. In England, we don't say rentier, we, we, we call them lodgers, which always sounds very seedy to me. I felt like a lodger, no longer a part of the family. And I was remarkably upset for a long time. It was ridiculous. And then my dad spoke to me about it. And uh, it, it was several conversations, but basically he said, you know you're always part of the family, but now you're grown up. I was in my 20s. And if you're going to be part of the family and live in the home, now as a responsible adult, it's appropriate that you take responsibility for the life of this family, that you become a supporter of the family life we have here. It's not a sign of being an outsider. Rather, it's a sign of growing up, taking responsibility, participating in the full life of the family. I think that's exactly what happens as we grow up in the church. When you first come to the church, it's filled with joy and you are receiving so much, so much new knowledge and fellowship and being around generally happy, upbeat, helpful people. Oftentimes, people who come to the church have a problem that needs to be addressed or something that they're working out or a grief in their life, and the church is a remarkably helpful place for that. But then there comes a point where you begin to realize that I can give back to this church. I can help support the family. And that's what God invites us to do in our tithing. That's what our relationship with the church can become. Not just receiving, but becoming responsible for the church and taking care of the needs of the church. Paul, a church planter, planted a lot of new churches. And he said this, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Notice what Paul says there. I am not commanding you. The tithe is never a requirement of God's love. It's not a fee that you pay. Rather, it is a test. It is a sign. It reveals your heart. It reveals your relationship with God. It reveals that you want to be about his purposes, that you want to be part of supporting the family. As I say, we're going to a congregational meeting and we're going to be talking about money. But don't get bogged down in the figures. Remember what it's all about, about taking responsibility for God's church about claiming our inheritance as part of the family. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that though you had everything that you needed, glory from all eternity, ultimate power, peace, 
beauty, and love. You gave it all up to confine us in the darkness, to share your light with us, your presence with us, your spirit with us, to take away the burdens that we carry, to give us a new family, a new relationship with God, a new place in heaven. Lord, we can scarcely imagine all that it costs you, but we thank you, Lord, that you are full of grace and generosity. We thank you, Lord, that you have claimed us. In Jesus' name.